Hello and thank you for joining us for Get Lost in Great Film from View Entertainment. I'm James King. In this series, we're asking film buffs from either side of the screen about their five favourite film moments. And in each episode, we'll be discussing a new genre to find out how cinema can inspire our creativity and open us up to new worlds, immersing ourselves in hours of uninterrupted bliss. In this episode, we're getting lost in action with stuntman to the stars, Rowley Earlham. Rowley, lovely to speak to you. Nice to meet you too. Um, I was look, looking at a, uh, a website that lists all your skills as a stunt performer. I have to say, I think it pretty much covers everything, but we'll we'll run through a few of them anyway. Sure. Um, all horse stunts, fight work, all weapons, fire, cars, trucks, crashes, near misses, cars into water, agricultural machinery, falls, sub-aqua, air rams, jet skiing, abseiling, explosions, knockdowns, wire work... And then at the end, it just says, etc. because there's probably <laughs> some extras as well. Um, does normal life ever feel a bit boring for you, Rowley? Um, no, I don't. Not, not really. It's a little bit of a, a sort of myth of what stunt people are. They're, they're not actually generally daredevils. Um, they are normally athletic individuals that want to perform. And in the absence of being able to sing, act or dance, stunt work is one of these um, things that if you're athletic, you can, um, you know, uh, exercise that, that want to, to perform. Um, and it's sort of an extension of acting and live, live shows. I started off um, jousting with a live, a live show, a jousting tournament that went to um, pre-Glasnost Russia back in 1990. That's what got me into performing. And then my first job was as a rider on Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, um, actually 30 years ago this November. So, yeah, um, but no, life isn't boring, um, but, you know, uh, work is very interesting. And, I, and um, there, there is an old saying that um, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. And that's certainly true of most people in the film industry. And I suppose, actually, uh, like you said, we think of you as daredevils, but, but a kind of risk-taking daredevil, daredevil is the last thing you could be because you're all about safety and not taking risks. Absolutely. You know, we, we, we are actually, you know, uh, health and safety officers for physical performance. <laughs> That's what we do. You know, um, I, I don't want anyone who's fearless or reckless. Um, they're, no, they're no good to me because that's just a ticking time bomb. And it, we, we need to be cautious about what we do. And we tr what we try and do is take the 35 millimeter of film and try and make it look as exciting and as dynamic as possible but try and keep it as safe as possible. You know, there is, there is no acceptable collateral damage. You know, if, if we don't all go home okay, then, I, then my day is not gone as, as, as I would want it to. There are a couple of things on that list. Um, I think a lot of them make sense to people. We know what, you know, car crashes and, and, and uh, falls are. What's a Russian swing? So a Russian swing is basically um, a big swinging apparatus that has a, uh, a platform on it that swings under, underneath an A-frame and one person rides the back of it and motivates it, gets it into a swinging motion and then a performer yeah. stands on the very front of it um, and then at the sort of crest of one of the swings will let go and fly through the air. Um, they are less used now. They, 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 they sort of went out of sort of favour um, in the 
sort of late 90s, early 2000s, because we can now do that work with wires, um, one of the problems with the Russian swing is if someone did make a mistake and fell off on the backswing, there's little or no time to get out of it, get out of the way of it coming back. So they are they are hazardous, um, and it's the same with the air ram, which is a which is a firing plate that you stand on that fires you through the air. They're hazardous pieces of equipment, and we can now do all of that work with with, with new wire work and winches and and um, that kind of stuff, which is uh, far safer. And how do you feel about the the advancement in visual effects then? Do you feel that that's taking away some of your work? Would you always prefer for, for real humans to be doing it? Well, no, uh, this, is, this, this was a myth that was around when I started performing. Um, it, you know, it was, it was often said in conversation that, you know, your days are numbered and in 30 years you'll be replaced by a digital person. It's actually completely untrue. The, the, the fact of the matter is the human body reacts with other things and, and the ground and vehicles, what have you, uh, um, in a completely organic way. And it's very diff difficult for them to digitally um, produce things that um, aren't completely scripted in physical movement. But in addition to that, actually what we do with visual effects now is we now work closely with them and try and blend the transition from what's real and what's not real. Um, you know, I've done horse battles now where you leave spaces to put CG horses doing things that you can, couldn't possibly do with a real horse. You know, um, you leave pockets of empty space for that to happen. And then so hopefully your real action that's happening in the foreground and in the background um, masks the fact that there are digital elements going on. So then you basically get drawn into the whole the, the whole frame in front of you and you don't know what's real and what isn't real. I think that's a good opportunity to speak about your first film choice, actually, because this is one that you've specifically chosen for uh, some of the horse work. And this is big Oscar winner from the mid-90s, 1995, Mel Gibson's Braveheart. Tell me about this choice, Rowley. Yeah, well, so um, my background historically was horses. I grew up, grew up riding and... Um, uh, I actually didn't work on Braveheart. I was working on First Night at the time. Um, but when Braveheart came out, it broke new ground in, in battle work. You know, the, the, the clashes um, between the horses um, and the people hadn't been seen before. And it just, it just looked amazing. And it was also one of the, 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 the sort of first films that didn't glamorize those battles. You know, you, you, they were a little bit uncomfortable to watch because you, you, you realize that actually the horror of being in that environment would have been unbelievable, you know? So it's, it's not action that's, you, you don't sit there smiling, enjoying it. You're literally just, you know, it, take, it took your breath away. And particularly those horse clashes, which are done by creating channels. When you, when you shoot them in profile and you have two lots of horses clashing, you create channels for the horses to go through that you can't see. Um, and, then, and then you have people coming off and doing that, you know, and doing what have you. Uh, it, it just really, all of those battles were so well shot. Um, and they were, at their time, that was the best horse battle ever shot. Yeah, I guess we're talking about or the, the 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 scene with horses that I think about anyway is what I call the hold scene, 
where the, the, the cavalry, the English cavalry, are going towards William Wallace and his men, getting closer and closer, and he's saying, hold, hold, hold. Exactly, and it's the whole spears coming up, you know, and there's a mixture of, you know, horse falls and saddle falls within that. There's, there's mechanical horses that are, being, that, are go- that are going down tracks and going into the, into the crowd, what have you. Um, and it was, it was just full-on carnage. It was amazing to watch, you know, and it, it and it did, you know, the the charge and you know that shot with the horses where they are charging and you can almost feel the hooves. The sound is such. If you saw that film in the cinema when it came out, the sound of the hooves and then they 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 all drop over this crest just before, um, you know, they get uh, to the the spear moment and then you have that great shot of the the camera that's tracking in. Um, and the spears come up in front, and then it's lots of quick cuts into the carnage. You know, amazing, really well shot. And you see what appears to be horses injured and killed. You know, as as would have happened. But but how di- difficult is it to work with horses in a situation like that? I mean, they're they're huge and dangerous animals. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is challenging. You know, and and the, the the thing about you know horse work is is that. What you actually see is you see the actual event happening, but generally when you do horse stunts, it's very, very calm and collected. You know, everyone will be relatively quiet and you'll canter around in a circle and you'll come into the moment of the event and maybe the horse will get pulled over, what have you. Um, um, but you only see the actual event. It's not like car stuff because when you, when you do a car chase, you know, you can hear the car coming up the road, going through the gears doesn't work like that with horses you have to kind of kid them that this is all kind of gentle and kind of nice you know and then just you know and just cut in when the when when the main event happens and of course as people will know when they watch the end credits of films and there's always you know no animals were harmed in the making of this film then the 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 safety around working with animals like that is huge isn't it there are so many people monitoring the action yeah i mean you you have the aha so if you want an haa an AHA certificate on the end of your film, then we they'll have a representative there, uh, and they're they're there to ensure the well-being of all of the animals on the set. Yeah. Um, let's talk about a second film then, which actually I read Mel Gibson from from Braveheart was originally considered for the lead role in this film, but it went uh, to Tom Hanks in the end. This is a film from a few years later, 1998, and this is Saving Private Ryan. And uh, I mean, I think anybody who wants to talk about the most visceral and uh, intense action scenes in cinema would always reference the first 20 minutes of Saving Private Ryan, wouldn't they? Totally. I mean, this was, again, again, we're going back to um, not glamorising war or not, you know, not looking at action um, in a glamorous way, but in a kind of haunting way. Um, This film was actually the stunt coordinator of um, Braveheart also coordinated this movie, um, Simon Crane, who's a a, a very prolific um, second unit director also. Um, Yeah, that the whole... The whole, you know, the beach landing and the guys in the water, you know, with too much stuff on, they they they, get, they, they come out into too deep of water and they're, they're drowning and they're getting shot. You know, that was all shot, shot in an underwater tank. Um, and then you have the 15, I think it's 15 guys coming off of the landing craft on fire. Um, and then and then you have the guys with the flamethrower exploding. Um, there's lots of wire work in there. Actually, one, one of the um, one of the guys, um, one of the people that gets that gets blown up and you see fly through the air is actually a mistake. Someone actually ended up going over a pot, an explosive pot, and actually getting oh, wow. blown in the air. Yeah. Um, 
but um yeah that whole that whole opening sequence is just you know it just you, you literally it's, it's silence isn't it when you watch it because it's just it just shows what, what the horror of that situation would have been and I think about 1,500 extras in that scene. This was all shot uh, on a beach in Ireland, I believe, although it's meant to be Omaha Beach, obviously, in, in Normandy. Um, when you're doing a scene like that, obviously there's a lot of um, squibs, I guess they'd be called, wouldn't they? And dummy rounds, you know, dummy explosives, dummy bullets. Um, where do the extras kind of stop and go, okay, now we're going to hand over to the professionals because this is too much for us? Well, you ha- yeah, because you, ha- you, you have your cast members and then you have your stunt performers and they will be doing all of the squib hits and all of the wire work and explosions and getting set on fire. And then, but they would be, but the extras would then be under, would still come under the umbrella um, of the stunt coordinator because he would then what you generally do is you you create um, groups of, of background extras and we call them, um, we have SPACs, we call them special action extras and they will get trained by the stunt department prior to shooting and you'll maybe have, you know, groups of 40 guys that you will then task to fill certain areas of the frame or certain areas of the field, you know, and often you'd call them by names, you'd have Oxford, Cambridge, Cheltenham, you know, so you, they would know who you were calling and who, who you were, you know, mar- marshalling. Um, so that that's how we do it. That's how you 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 control large numbers of people. And uh, you started off as a performer. Now you're coordinating Game of Thrones. I know it was a huge success for you as a stunt coordinator. Um, I mean, you have to have a different skill for that as well, don't you? It's not just the ability to do the stunts, but there also has to be an organisational skill that you have when you become a stunt coordinator. Absolutely. I mean, it, I mean, it starts with you know, it all starts off initially. You get a script. Um, well, you get a job first, and then you get the script, um, and then you'll break that down, and then you'll meet with the director and, and work out what, what they want from it, and then, and then you'll start with the choreograph- choreography of, of, of the fights and the, and the action. You'll maybe start developing wire work. Um, so it's constantly that's all the prep side of it because it's all about the planning. You know, we you know you need every, everything needs to be prepped ahead of time, ready to go. Everyone know what they're doing, um, and, then, and then on the day, particularly in these big battle scenes. You need to be able to command control of the, the theatre of war, as it were. You know, if you've got 700 extras, 70 stunts, 15 cast, you've, got, you've also got the crew. You know, the stunt department tend to, tend to do a lot of camera safety and make sure that everyone's in a safe position, working very closely with the special effects department who are, are doing the same thing. Yeah, it is, it, it's, it's being... Prepped and planned for what you're going to do, but being also ready to change what you've planned um, and find a solution to a problem you find on the day. Because, you know, that, that's what essentially our job is problem solving. You know, we try and get as much planned as possible so it, it all works, but be prepared to, to be malleable and flexible um, so that, so that you know, if you have an inclement weather or something isn't working, you know, that you, you need to be able to adapt and react. And I suppose sometimes those things that that come out of the blue can actually help and make the scene even better. I mean, I know I was reading, for example, that that twenty minutes of Saving Private Ryan, Spielberg, who famously likes to storyboard his movies, actually didn't storyboard that. Obviously, the stunt coordinator planned it all, but in terms of where Spielberg was shooting, he kind of left it up to the moment a little bit, and that added to the whole quality. Yeah, I mean, there's different ways to skin a cat. So you can you can you can 
do your storyboards or you can pre-visit a, a sequence and often pre-visiting a sequence is because of the visual effect um, costings so that, so that we, 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 you know you know if you're if you're enhancing a background or you know um, extending um, a set you know VFX need to know what you're shooting but some but something like that in those battles you will you will have an idea um, where your A camera is going to go, and that, that's that's the shot you normally set up to. But then B and C camera on 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 a normal film will find another angle. But on something like Saving Private Ryan, I I should imagine they probably had six, seven, eight different cameras, um, you know, um, fishing for shots, interesting shots, and 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 of course when you rehearse these things um, and choreograph them, you do that with a a small team. So that when you get onto a set and you have your full numbers and basically all of the creatives, um, all the heads of department on a film are all there shooting it, there are ideas that come come out that 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 you know in, augment and enhance the performance and what you achieve. When you're watching a film like Saving Private Ryan, do you think, oh man, I wish I worked on that. I wish I was involved in that one. No, totally. I mean, I, uh, Private Ryan was shot um, uh, re relatively early in my uh, uh, performing, and I, I, I would have loved to have worked on that. I subsequently went to work on Band of Brothers, which was the, obviously the TV, the TV um, not I wouldn't say yeah. spin-off, but it was, you know, akin. You know, the, the, and the thing about Saving Private Ryan is when you watch these films, I think Saving Private Ryan was the first film that used 45 and 90 degree shutter on the lens. So instead of opening for 180 of, of, of the lens, it, it would open for 90 and 45 degrees, which gave you that staccato effect. That's what kept the blood and the mud hanging in the air. Um, and it was, again, it, was, it was also used again in another one of my choices um, uh, later on um, to great effect. It was also then used in uh, Gladiator as well by Ridley Scott. And it, it gives a different look. And, and Saving Private Ryan was the first film that did that. Uh, we'll stick with Steven Spielberg then for your third film choice. So it's earlier Spielberg, going back to the 80s, the first in a quartet of Indiana Jones films. This is uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark from 1981. Oh, I mean, so many great action scenes and stunt scenes in this, right? Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, I was 11 when that film came out. Um, and from the opening... That's the perfect age for Indiana Jones. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that opening sequence with the, uh, the golden idol um, and, you know, w you know, when he takes it and then uh, all starts to crumble, the ball appears and he runs and he runs through the blow darts and then he's, he's betrayed by Alfred Molina um, with the whip and that, you know, it, I mean, it's that, that, that was just like, at the cinema, that was mind-blowing. That was amazing. Um, and then, you know, there's so many other good bits in that. You know, there's the... There's the the famous chase in the market, um, which has the the sword moment um, uh, where he just shoots him with the gun. Now, um, <laughs> the fact of that matter is that 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 was a stunt uh, a stuntman, uh, a prolific stuntman called Terry Richards, who he got all the big you know he was the big guy. Um, sadly, no longer with us. Um, but they had a whole fight plan. The reason he shot him was because they ran out of time that day. So it was like, what we can do is just shoot him, and that you know, um, and and it, it, it's become a, a famous movie moment, you know. Um, yeah, no, Indiana Jones, and then there was the the, tr the whole thing with the truck where he was um, went underneath the truck with the whip, um, and I think I'm right in saying 
Raiders of the Lost Ark was one of the first films that did a behind the scenes making of the stunts documentary because they had the whole the whole thing with um, his stunt double um, was Vic Armstrong, who um, again went on to be um, second unit director of the Bond, of Bond movies. Um, and, uh, you know, there's that whole thing where they had to dig a channel out in the ground because there wasn't enough room to go underneath the truck. So they had to travel, you know, and those those, those guys were doing proper stunts back then. That, that was proper work. You know, it really was. Um, and you've got the whole thing with the plane, the fight with the plane, with the guy, the plane starts spinning around. Oh, yeah. With Pat Roach. Yeah. Yeah. So many good bits in that movie. Um, it just really was. I, I just think it just it just broke new ground. It was just so clever. It was so clever. And 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 watching it um, as as I you know did do in preparation for this chat, comparing it to obviously Saving Private Ryan is the same director but such a different tone. What you see in Indiana Jones is humour as well with the stunts as well, don't you? And 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 sort of using difficult stunts and dangerous stunts, I'm sure, but using them to get a laugh. Yeah, no, totally. And it, you know, I mean, I still remember that. Um, you know that bit where he he go he goes down and there's, there's um they 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 look down into the into the room they've got to go to and he goes what 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 can you see something something's moving and he's like <laughs> he's like why did it have to be snakes and it's just like oh it's just great it's just really good yeah, yeah it, everything was just on tone but none of the see the comedy all works but it doesn't t- it doesn't turn into a comedy okay. it's still you still you know it's one of those films that you just you know what I think I've watched Raiders the second half of Raiders of the Lost Ark more than any other movie because if it's on you tend to just go oh and sit down you know if you flick through and it's on you halfway through you go oh and you just oh i'm, I'm gonna watch now because in the next bit this happens and then you know it's one of those movies you know yeah i mean this podcast is all about uh getting lost in in great movies and i think that's something i totally associate with the indiana jones movies uh is that you can be transported to other lands, other countries, and it's just this roller coaster of adventure, isn't it? Um, it's something you really do totally get lost in, as you said. Even if you're just picking up the second half, you're just immediately bang straight in it again and lost in that world, um, which is just wonderful. So, are you watching this at 11 years old and thinking, "I'd love to be involved in something like this"? Um, I, it was always kind of there because um, I, I did have I had some contacts in the film industry and um, uh, so it was always kind of there. It was wasn't really until I went on to um, Prince of Thieves as a rider that I was like, oh, this is this is really cool. But I did my first days work. My first days and this is interesting actually. That my first day of work um, on a film was when they were doing the catapult scene from Prince of Thieves where Costner. And Morgan Freeman get fired over the wall. Yeah. Uh, so the first stunt I ever saw was Simon Crane, who who um, coordinated Private Ryan and Braveheart. He, he and uh, uh, a stunt guy called Clive Curtis, they both did a backfall off the wall in, into into an airbag, and then they reversed the film. And that is the catapult moment where they fly over the wall. So that was my first. Wow. That's my first day on a film set, and it's also the day that Alan Rickman ran out and shouted, "You can cancel Christmas." <laughs> and, it was, and it was then I was thinking, this is really cool. This is really cool. I, 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 kind, I kind of fancy doing this. But the, So you started off with working with horses. So all those other things that I listed with the cars and the crashes and the, the underwater stuff, did you have to learn that or was that already there as well? There is skill sets and you can either have, have them through, you know, doing things as a child and developing them or you can go out and learn them. But most of, of stunt work is performance. 
the thing about being able to do horsework is horses is one of the things you can't can't go out and learn in six months. It, it's a life yeah. it's a lifetime skill. It's a life skill. You know, you can go out and learn to rollerblade, and you'll probably get quite good in a year. You won't be good on a horse in a year. You just won't. It, 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 you, you know, and and it's also about timing because you you know you learn timing on horses the thing about horses a horse is the only vehicle that will that will be second guessing you on the way in to do something the car won't change its mind the motorbike won't change its mind and nor will the truck but the horse might so you you have to learn timing and you have to preempt um any hesitancy from your horse that so you override that and you get to where you need to be at the right time so you know um the, the other skills you know driving the thing about uh, driving stunts is is actually there are some incredible drivers out there with skill sets, but it, it, it's about control. It's about, it's about being in control. You definitely don't want someone tearing f through a film set um, in an unsafe manner. You know, they, they, people need to be driving within their skill set, you know, within their abilities. Otherwise, they're a danger to everybody. And uh, is it still um, working with the horses that's your, that your favourite? That's your favourite? It's what you started doing? Are they still your favourite things to do? Um, I think it's nice to do a mixture. I mean, I, I, I'm at home with the horse work, um, and you know, um, I, I do enjoy it. It's kind of, I, I'm in my element, but then it's nice to do car stuff and it's nice to do, you know, big fire stuff, but, but also complicated wire work is challenging and, uh, and, you know, sometimes to get a shape or a look is quite tricky. Um, you know, I did Miss Peregrine's, um, and we had to, uh, fly the actress in, uh, in that, in that film for Tim Burton, you know, and then it was quite tricky to get that kind of wire work, um, pinned down, but we were, we were pretty successful in the end. Those fire scenes, we mentioned one earlier in, in the, that, that opening scene of, uh, Saving Private Ryan, but it's, it's a classic stunt scene, isn't it? To set someone on fire and see them running around on fire. Uh, how do you actually do that then? How do those, how does that work so that no one's injured? Well, um, so there's kind of two ways to do a fire burn, really. Um, one with a mask and one without a mask. Um, uh, so, but, 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 so both of those, um, you would basically have three layers of, of uh, Nomex underwear and we, and we soak it in a substance called Zell Gel, comes from the, comes from the States. Uh, it's basically uh, uh, like tea tree oil. Um, it, it was originally developed for burn victims, but it, it goes under, under we, we, we chill it overnight and they, so they put three layers of wet underwear on, then a rain suit over the top of the underwear to stop it absorbing into the costume. Then we would put a boiler suit on and then the costume on. Um, so that protects the body um, and we would put gloves on and what have you. Um, and then if we have silicone masks made, basically ignite someone completely, but Often when you want to do it without a mask, so you want to see the humanity of somebody, what I, ten yeah. what I tend to do is we have on, on film sets, we have the big special effects fans, they're called Ritters. And I normally have those on tick over. So when I light the guys, they're facing towards the Ritters. So basically that, that small amount of air will push the flames back away from their face. You know, um, and, and then they'll have Zell gel on their face, what have you. And, and I... Uh, um, uh, I, I like to do a countdown um, because historically, back in the day, it was kind of 
30 years ago, it was just hold your breath and go as long as you can. Well, it don't, it's, you don't get the best performance out of somebody doing that. So I, I do a countdown and I do an 18 second countdown and, and the performers will be given, you know, three seconds stood up, four seconds down on your knees, five seconds on your hands and knees, two seconds laying flat, two seconds dead, and then we put you out. So, that, so you get a whole uh, spectrum of shapes um, and performance, but also the count, you know, holding your breath, knowing when you can hear the count and you know that you're only 10 seconds away, it's, it's, it's easier to keep performing and not be worrying about your running out of breath because you do not want to be taking a breath in the middle of one of those. And what do you feel personally when you're when you're in the middle of that suit? Are you sensing any of the heat? Are you sensing any tingling, any pain? Um, no, uh, as a performer, no, you won't really feel anything. Um, the, the, the problem the problem with um, feeling heat because it's not flames that burn you; it's heat transfer. If you start to feel hot um, before it's over, the heat transfer is going to continue. So. You re this is another reason to limit the amount of time because to, to be honest, you know, no one's going to hold on a shot of someone on fire for 18 seconds. It's going to be three cuts for three different yeah. angles and, it's, and a total of about six. So there's, there's no value in doing that, you know. Um, and I, I've done a lot of burns and, and you get through them safely by, by planning them meticulously and sticking to a plan. Uh, let's move on to your next film, uh, which is from 2002. I think we can call them zombies, although I'm, I don't think they're ever referenced as zombies in the film. Actually, aren't they called The Infected in 28 Days Later? Yes. So this was one you worked on, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. So um, it's a Danny Ball movie and um, it, I worked on it. And it was, it was um, oh, what's it? Killian Murphy's first job, I believe. So I did a couple of things on it. I doubled for Christopher Eccleston getting dragged out of the back of the taxi by Marla. And um, and then I also was one of the zombies running across the field. Um, it was actually a, a manor house down near Salisbury. And Danny Boyle's instructions were, I don't care what you do, just run like. So that was basically what we did. And that and then for me, when I saw the movie, you know, we 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 grew up in the 70s and 80s with, with zombie movies, Day of the Dead, Dawn of the Dead, where you've got these limb dragging zombies that, you know, you pretty much unless you run, unless you go in a dead end, you can outrun them. But suddenly these things were running at you and it was just on a whole different level. You know, that whole sequence where the um, in, in, in the, the garage sequence where they're on fire, what have you. Uh, we did we did that in East London um, and uh, we actually we blew up this petrol station. And um, I think someone had forgotten to notify the authorities and we had about 17 appliances turn up because of this big explosion we did down there. But I, I just think that that just for, for the zombie genre just broke new ground, you know. And, you know, I use some of that um, sort of the reference of, of, of that motion for Game of Thrones when we for the for the whites in Game of Thrones. So we, we, we reference back to that. Um, and, and certainly considering from what I read, it was a you know, low budget movie um, and you know uh, there weren't thousands of extras and things like that it's it looks incredibly slick i mean it, it it was made in a way where you can't spot the fact that there were budget restrictions no i mean danny ball's a great filmmaker you know i mean they, they they shot those opening those opening um shots of um killian murphy in london were shot at like 6 a 6 a.m on a sunday morning in london you know trying to you know find bridges that didn't have anybody on them or what have you and doing that you know they had about an hour to go and 
punch those off. No, um, it's not always, you know, it's not always about spending ridiculous amounts of money on something. If, if, if you know, a good filmmaker is making a really good story, it's not normally always about how much money. I mean, I've, I've worked on so many um, sequences where you shot a car chase for four weeks and then actually when you watch the movie, it, it, you, you see the start of it and the end of it and that's, and that's about it. Yeah, it's been completely cut. You know, it's not just about how much money you throw at something necessarily. Yeah, that, that moment fascinates me where you've worked on a film, you've done your job. I, I'm guessing you've seen rushes and things, so you know generally what it looks like. But then several months later, the finished product, you go and see the movie when it's absolutely 100% finished. Um, is that a nerve-wracking experience to see how much you're featured or wh- whether your work looks as good as you hoped it would? Yeah, I mean, as a performer, you obviously, you know, you want to be seen because you you want to see yourself in the movies. That that's that that was the whole point of it. Um, as a coordinator that's produced work, yeah, I mean, because you, when you choreograph this stuff and you shoot it, you do have control control of it. But generally, once it goes to editorial, particularly in post production, your your whatever is your product that that's been you know. Um, given you know somebody else has control over and then the reality is look is you don't own it whoever's employing you owns it you're you're being paid to provide a service and and, and people can do whatever they want with it but it it's 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 still exciting I, I i would say that it's you don't enjoy a movie as much if you've worked on it as if you don't because you i can still watch a movie and although i will identify action and you know and appreciate what they've done or how they might have done it i'm much more likely to be uh, lost in the story and the drama and probably going to you know not recognize stuff so much if i haven't worked on it when you've worked on it you know the actors inside out you know you've worked with them you know for 20 30 40 weeks so but you do hope that it you know in the mix that it's going to come out well We'll finish with a series that you've worked on several times um, and perhaps the most famous action franchise, certainly British action franchise of them all, which is the James Bond movies. We're going to look at Goldeneye. So this was Pierce Brosnan's first movie from 1995. Uh, Tell us a bit about this one, Rowley. Why have you chosen this? Well, so so Goldeneye, I think um, this was the reboot of Bond, you know, after the Dalton days. This was Brosnan's first uh, outing. It's also directed by um, Martin Campbell, who is a, a brilliant director and a lovely man who he he used to um, direct the Sweeney TV show and the professionals back in the sort of 70s and 80s. And he's a great action director. And he actually and he did reboot as well. He he is famous because he rebooted twice. He did the first Daniel Craig one as well. Casino Royale. Um, but I think Goldeneye, I think, uh, you know, that whole, the dam sequence, um, which was actually performed by a friend of mine, Wayne Michaels, who yeah. um, was also um, on and off the milk tray man in commercials. Um, <laughs> so uh, uh, I believe Who he cares does. about Bond when you've been the milk tray man? I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, so he did that. You know, that was a, you know, that was a, a 600 foot uh, bungee jump over an 800 foot dam. You know, I think that whole opening sequence is is amazing, and 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 you know when he runs around and he looks up and the camera's above him, you can clearly see it's Wayne um, uh, doing that. And um, yeah, I just uh, I thought that whole opening sequence was amazing. And then you know, and then you had the other elements of it. You had the tank chase in there, and actually, interestingly, the the driver of the tank in the tank chase um, is a stunt uh, 
man called Gary Powell. Um, he, he went on to coordinate the Bonds. So he coordinated Casino Royale, Quantum of Solace, Spectre and Skyfall. GoldenEye was coordinated again by Simon Crane, who did Private Ryan and uh, Braveheart. So, you know, so oft, often Bond performers go on to coordinate big movies. And there's this, there's this family that you all seem, you know, you know each other and are friends with each other. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's, there's sort of, there's 400 stunt performers in the UK. So everybody knows everybody. Um, yeah. And it, it's a growing industry. Would you say it's more um, male-centred than female? No, certainly not at the moment. Um, the, the trend has been for uh, female leads and female cast over the last couple of years. And um, if you're a female stunt performer in the UK now, you are do, you're doing really well because they, they, they are very, very busy. Uh, you know, and, and, and good people are you know hard to come by. Let's talk a little bit about Bond then and some favourites because obviously we've got the new. Bond movie coming out soon, uh, No Time to Die. And the whole thing about James Bond, from having spoken to Barbara Broccoli a couple of times, is that it's, it, she always refers to it as a family. And certainly it was her father, who of course, you know, started out the Bond movies, Carby Broccoli. Um, do you sense that when you're working on a Bond movie, that there is that sort of history there that many of the people have worked on several films before? Yeah, they, they definitely carry through people. You know, there's not a turnover of, of production designers and costume designers. You know, it, it's the same people and the same teams come back. It is, you know, it is, um, it is the biggest TV franchise, I think, worldwide. Uh, where are we now? 26? 26 movies? Something like that. Yeah. You know, I, I think it is the longest running uh, and the most successful fi- film franchise ever. You know, I've been fortunate um, enough to work on a number of them. Um, so you started with Goldeneye. So Goldeneye was my first one. I was a driver on that, uh, background driver um, on, on that one. Uh, and then I did um, Casino Royale um, as well. I did Tomorrow Never, oh, sorry, I did Tomorrow Never Dies. Um, and, and then Casino, Casino Royale, Quantum of Solace um, and Skyfall. Do you remember what you're doing in all of those? Um, so Golden Isles Driver, um, Tomorrow, ne- Tomorrow Never Dies, I, we did the, um, the Chinese um, chase through the market. So I was there when Jean-Paul Goy um, did the motorbike jump um, ab- above the helicopter. The hel- helicopter wasn't yeah. there, but he did the jump for real. And I can, always re- I can always remember he had this big motorcycle and they basically filled this um, set building with cardboard boxes for him to jump into. Um, but it, it did look a bit daunting and he had a dummy of Michel Yeoh um, um, sat um, astride him facing the other way um, but so, so I worked on that sequence we, we were in the Range Rovers coming around the corner firing guns and stuff and it was just amazing to be on a Bond film and in a Marnie suit with you know with Ray-Bans on firing machine guns out of um, you know product placement Range Rovers it's what, it's what, it's what stunt dreams are made of <laughs> what else did we do my first actual stunt day on a bond film was tomorrow never dies i'll always remember this tomorrow never dies and it's the opening sequence where the uh the the submarine the, it's, it's, it's a uk naval vessel gets 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 blown up and all the sailors are in the water and and and, right. and, and stampers you know um oh it's jonathan price's um uh a uh, boat goes over the top of them and Stamper shoots everybody in the water. And we did that at the paddock tank in Pinewood and it was absolutely freezing. And we had these, um, and I'm not sure it's a good idea. I, I wouldn't recommend it. We had these hot, they, they brought in these 
inflatable hot tubs with warm water for us to sit in in between takes. But actually, <laughs> I think getting getting out of a, a hot tub at 38 degrees to get into freezing cold water, you know, on an on, I think it was like no, 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 November or something, 1997 that we did we did that about three in the morning was not very pleasant. And of course, when Daniel Craig came on board and you said you worked on on some of his films as well, the the, the action changed a bit, didn't it? It did become. Well, I suppose we'd had the, the Jason Bourne movies before that, and and I think that the action just became perhaps a little bit more realistic, a bit more gritty. Yeah, totally. I mean, I was I was going to mention it earlier. Actually, um, historically on Bond films, that you know reactions to you know bullet hits and what have you are kind of over the top. And you know, back on Private Ryan, when they were going to recreate that, that the guys watched real footage of, of the D-Day landings. Um, and to see what happens when someone gets shot. And, and what happens in reality is if someone has a mortal wound, it, it's like a puppet, it's like a puppet so it's string cuts. And you know, we call it the Saving Private Ryan or the Schindler's List death, death, we call it, you know, where someone just drops. And then so Bond, you know, has, has over the top action and it still does, but the actual fighting style and everything was just grittified and it, what, 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 you know, the desire was to make it more real more, you know, more, more real, more real, and more dynamic, and grittier, and dirtier, you know, and, and to make Bond a bit harder and a, and a bit more troubled, you know, he's got some. This Bond's got baggage, you know. It, 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 it's it's different. It's a it, it's another reboot. He's less suave. Uh, do you have a favourite James Bond then, out of all the all the actors who've played him? I met Timothy Dalton on Hot Fuzz. He's a nice fella. Daniel Craig is um, great. I doubled him on Golden Compass. He, he's really good. He's really talented, but cautious, you know. Um, he's got a really good work ethic. Um, he's a really nice guy. So Daniel, I say, yeah. And what was great about Casino Royale is that the opening scene, it's in Madagascar, isn't it? And there's the crane crane scene and the free running is that I just remember watching that new Bond first film for a while and you go okay this is the way to bring back a franchise this is you're straight back into it aren't you absolutely and that you know that was it was meant to be Madagascar but shot in the Bahamas and we went out there um and uh I can remember when they did the crane jump it had been, it had been rehearsed a couple of days before or the day the day before and the two guys jumping that rehearsed it, one of them got hurt. He hurt his leg, so he couldn't jump. So the guy that had been up there clipping them on to do the jump, to clip on the wires, now had to do the jump. So I get a call on the radio, and I'm like, yeah, go ahead. And they're like, yeah, you need to go up the crane. You're clipping the guys on. And I was like, I've not been up that crane. And it was 140 feet high. And I was like, uh, I think I should probably go up there and get myself acclimatised. So I put a harness on. I went to the caterers, got myself some lunch and some water, like pat lunch. And I went up the crane. And I sat there for three hours on the end of the crane at 140 feet. And it was the most amazing view. But these cranes, their strength is their flexibility. So this, the end of this crane was doing like a 30-foot diameter swing. And I literally went up there and sat there because I thought, if I'm clipping these guys on, I need, I need to be comfortable up here. I cannot be here, you know, concerned about my... Because I don't want to make, make a mistake up here. And then the guys came up and then we clipped them on. And, and, you know, and although it's cut, they actually did jump from a 140-foot crane down 20 feet to a crane at 120 feet. 
and then they jumped down from 120 feet onto a building which is about another 50 foot lower and then they jumped all in one go so and it was a series of gold what we call gold tail devices which are deceleration devices that enable you to do the jump but they actually did all three jumps in one take and what's what's protecting them then you've got you've got uh, airbag and on the ground in case they fall or have they got wires on or anything like that? Uh, they, they've, they've got wires on. Um, they've got wires on. No, 120 feet, you'd need multiple airbags to cover the distance that they could, you know, could go. And down below was the construction site, so really not practical. They're, they're, on, they're on wires. They're on what we, uh, it's called Tech 12. Um, has a braking strain of about two and a half tonnes. Um, but they did the jump for real. You know, it was rehearsed um, in, a, in a stage. But the tricky thing for them was to be able to calculate, preempt the movement in the two cranes. As stunts go, it was right up there, very gnarly indeed. And I read that the the Wayne Michaels stunt that we talked about for for the beginning of Goldeneye, the the dam, which is um, the Saska Dam in in Switzerland, that was one take. You just did it. That's what you see on the film. That was it. And I think that the obviously the bungee jump in itself is difficult, but I think for him the most difficult bit was remembering just as the cords tugs to get his gun out because he then has to get his gun out and and shoot into the ground. And so, you you know, you've got to remember that as well as remembering how to actually control the bungee jump. Yeah, and, and, if, and if you watch it, he did, he did actually tweak his back doing that. If you, if you watch it, he wanted to do a perfect swan dive and hold it as long as possible. Um, and I, I can assure you that, to, to actually hold that shape while you're falling because for anyone that's ever done a bungee jump the feeling before you feel tension before you are, are it's confirmed to you that you are being arrested you feel like you're free falling and so to hold that shape I, I that's why it stands out to me as, as being you know um just uh, an amazing stunt um you know um but he did tweak his bike back slide. you see a little bit of whip when, when he actually when when the bungee takes up on that stunt um, I remember watching that in mid '90s, and it was totally when everyone was starting to get into bungee jumping in a similar way, actually, to Casino Royale when free running was becoming a thing as well. Um, so, do you see fashions in stunts? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's you know that's that whole parkour movement, which is is essentially gymnastics on concrete um, parkour. Um, it, it has its elements. I mean, now with YouTube and social media and that, I mean, the things people are doing now. I mean, the thing about parkour is you, you people do what they want to do and they and they augment it to, you know, you know, a, a, a snapshot on Instagram um, with stunt work. You know, you are given a script and you're given a, a situation, you're given an environment or given a set and you have to make things work. So it's like you have to make it work into a story. So it's a slightly different. You'll 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 take the physical skill sets from things like parkour and gymnastics and what have you, um, but then you need to have a creative um, uh, flair to make that make sense in the story and, and and make the viewer excited but still believing what you're doing is doable, you know. Um, and and that and that's the key to it is to keep the illusion up that this this event is actually happening right in front of you. Uh, so let's run through your movies again. We started with Braveheart. We went on to Saving Private Ryan. Uh, second Spielberg movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, and then we talked about 28 Days Later and had a bit of a Bond loving. We talked about Goldeneye, but my God, there's so many amazing, amazing action scenes from James Bond movies um, and covered just a few of them. Um, Rowley, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. And I think you've really uh, 
well, hopefully you've explained a lot of the mysteries of your job to people because it is, it's one of those jobs that you see um, on the end credits of movies and we know that, of course, your um, colleagues are so highly talented in what they do, but we don't always know exactly what that is or how you guys do it. No, well, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. Raoul, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Super, thank you. Thanks for listening. Now, if you got lost in this episode... Let us know at View Entertainment on all the usual social platforms. The hashtag is Get Lost in Great Stories. And don't forget, immersing ourselves in great films at the cinema isn't just for fun, it, it does us good too. Until next week, it's goodbye for now from me, James King, and all at View Entertainment. Oh.